Bibles to 1 Kings. Today we're going to be reading chapter 14 and then verses 1 through 20 as we do continue on in the book of 1 Kings. And here you're going to read a sad story of what happens when a man in a kingdom cast God behind their back, turn their back on him, throw him over their shoulder, try to ignore him and his commandments. No good comes of it. That doesn't mean that men don't do it. And unfortunately, the newly appointed king of the northern kingdom, Jeroboam, was one of those men who attempted to ignore God and thought good might come of it. No, it never does. But before we come to the word of the Lord, let's go to the Lord of the word. Let's ask for his help. Sovereign Lord, I pray that you would be with me this day. I am weak, but I know you are mighty. I, O Lord, uh, am not able to divide this word aright without your help. I pray, Lord, therefore, that you would give me an extra measure of your spirit, that I would fade and become merely the mailman, the messenger, delivering the message from the king. May Christ increase. May I decrease, and may you be glorified, and may your people see you as the awesome God that you are. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. First Kings chapter 14, I'll be reading verses 1 through 20. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. That time, Abijah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, please arise and disguise yourself that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahijah the prophet is there who told me that I would be king over this people. Also take with you 10 loaves, some cakes and a jar of honey and go with him. He will tell you what will become of the child. And Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahijah. But Ahijah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. Now the Lord had said to Ahijah, Here is the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. And so it was when Ahijah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door, he said, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people, Israel, and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes. But you have done more evil than all who were before you. For you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. For the Lord has spoken. Arise, therefore, go to your own house. When your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, 
The Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day, what even now? For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which he gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river because they have made their wooden images, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel sin. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Tirzah. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahijah the prophet. Now the acts, the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, indeed they are written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel. The period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years, so he rested with his fathers. Then... Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You'll take a look at what we've just read and then back up just slightly to chapter 13. You will remember that the previous chapter ended this way. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but again he made priests from every class of people for the high places. Whoever wished, he consecrated him. And he became one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and destroy it from the face of the earth. The Lord had warned what would happen. He had set before Jeroboam, as in a very real sense, he sets before all of his people blessings and curses. He says, be faithful, follow me, keep my commandments. And I will exalt you and I will establish your dynasty. But turn away from me. No matter what else you do, you will be cursed and your generation will be cut off. Unfortunately, Jeroboam still he stuck to his stubborn way. He corrupted the worship of God. He created priests from amongst all the people, holy days of his own devising and so on. And the Lord's curse began to fall upon his household. We see that beginning to take place. The crown prince, Ahijah, falls ill. And uh, we know that this man, Jeroboam, was a wicked, wicked king. But even wicked parents love their children. And he is obviously deeply concerned with what is happening to his son, Abijah. So... He doesn't notice, uh, well, I, I should say this to you, notice this. He doesn't go to his own prophets, his own priests, and say, what will happen to the boy? He knows that the religion that he has created is empty, it's worthless. But he knows that there is one who knows what is going to happen and who serves the Lord, and that is Ahijah. Uh, Ahijah was the one who had told Jeroboam that he would be the prince. He was the one who delivered the message to him that he was going to become the leader of the northern kingdom, that the Lord was exalting him, and he set before him the Lord's terms. And so he knows this is a man who knows God. And so he sends his wife. He can't go himself, he doesn't think. He wants the truth. He's not willing, of course, to do what the Lord says, but he wants the truth from this man's hand, so he sends his wife. Um, it, is, it is so sad that we, we see this man, he has refused to submit to the Lord, and now he's trying to manipulate him into, into giving him uh, a word of comfort regarding his son, perhaps. 
and they tell us uh, about his spiritual condition. Um, and it, it's actually, it's really shocking when you think about it. What do these words tell us? They tell us, for instance, that Jeroboam knew there was a God. He knew that there was a true God. He knew that he had servants who truly knew him and who served him. Men who were filled with faith and who, as a result, did what the Lord said. And he knew Ahijah to be one of those gods, uh, one of those men who served God. But he himself had rejected God. At the same time, he wants the truth that he knows that God has. But he's willing, when it comes to worship, to engage in lie after lie after lie. What an awful, awful situation to live a life that you know is a lie. To stand before people and worship God in ways that he has not proclaimed. To know it's all wrong and yet to continue on in it. This is a, it's a terrible situation, truly. This is like unto what Jesus calls the unforgivable sin, to know the truth and to deny it in this kind of way. But he sends off his wife to the prophet Ahijah. He, he dresses her up as uh, an ordinary farmer's wife. She doesn't go with gifts of gold. She goes with, with ordinary gifts. The interesting thing is, here we have this, this play going on. He knows that God knows the future. He knows that God knows what's going to happen to his son. He also knows that the prophet Ahijah is blind, and he thinks that the same God who, gave Ahijah, who will give Ahijah knowledge of whether or not his son will live or die is not going to tell Ahijah, hey, that's Jeroboam's wife. You ask yourself, why is it that he feels that the Lord's hand is foreshortened in something like that? But that's what he does. So she goes off in disguise. She, she disguises herself as an ordinary person, and... Uh, she heads to Ahijah, and when Ahijah hears the sound of her feet, as the Lord has told him that she's going to come, he says to her, Come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. The Lord then makes his case. He delivers, as it were, to the wife of Jeroboam the words that he would speak directly to Jeroboam or Jeroboam there. But it's a legal case. I hope you see that. He puts before him all of the things that he told him, the covenant that he made with him, a covenant just as sure as the covenant that was made with David in 2 Samuel 7. And he shows him, for instance, in his indictment, that he had been so greatly blessed Think of all of the things that the Lord had given to Jeroboam. He had given him more tribes and more lands than the descendants of David. And he had told him that his generation would be preserved, would be taken care of. Had he continued to worship the Lord the way the Lord had said, had he not removed the Levites from their places, had he not created this, this blasphemous false worship with these calves and so on, and false holy days and so on, and, and, and all of these awful things that he's corrupted the land with. Had he obeyed God, God tells him, I would have kept my covenant to you. I would have kept my promises. Now, we need to remember Jeroboam didn't believe that that was the case. Jeroboam thought that if he allowed his people to go to the temple and to worship God the way that God had, had said, that eventually the schism would be healed that the division between the northern and southern kingdoms would cease to exist. The people would remember that they were one people under God. And they would be again, they would turn against the northern kingdom. The Lord had said, no, I will preserve you. But he did not trust him. He did not trust him enough to worship 
the way that God intended. No, you can't do it your way, God. We have to take things into our own hands. How often have God's people done that, though? How often have they said, no, your worship won't work? We need to add to it. We need to change it. We need to modify it. We need to take away. Yes, that worship may have been okay for people 2,000 years ago, but things are different now. We need a highly, highly nuanced, culturally relevant, contemporary form of worship now, or people will not come and worship and everything will fall apart. People honestly believed that. He believed it in his own time, and it was his undoing. God said, I would have given you all of these things, but what did you do? You crumpled, you attempted at least to crumple me up and toss me behind your back. You attempted to throw me and my religion that I had given to the people, pointing towards the coming of the Messiah. You attempted to throw it all away, but I will not be, he says to him, cut off. What will happen is you and your family will be cut off, having violated the covenant having shown yourself to be faithless and utterly wicked when it comes to leading my people, your generation is the one that will perish. And the prophecy, actually the prophecy in in the Hebrew is, is very, very raw. The KJV actually conveyed it fairly, fairly well. Uh, The NKJV, I hate to say this, actually censors the word of the Lord here. It really does blunt the, um, uh, the edge of it. I, I'm going to actually read what the KJV says here because it's, the Lord is speaking very brutally, very raw uh, language is being used in, um, in addressing him. And I figure I can't get in trouble if I just read the Bible in church, right? That's, uh, well, anyway, here's the KJV translation of 1 Kings 14.10. Therefore, behold... I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam him that pisseth against the wall and him that is shut up and left in Israel and will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as a man taketh away dung till it be all gone. All of the males in your line are going to be cut off. I won't leave you one, and I'm going to take you away. I'm going to treat you. You treated me and my covenant like excrement. I will now treat you and your descendants in the same way till they are all gone. The Lord does not mince words. He is very direct in dealing with us. He is not a soft God when it comes to judgment. We need to remember that because we always, we we seem to... We seem to have remolded God after the image of some sort of grandmother who yeah, very, very kind. Oh, he would never judge anybody. Loves everybody no matter what. You know, that's not, no, we, we have an awesome king. Our God is a consuming fire to fall into his hands, to come before him without having a mediator is to be in a terrible, terrible situation. So he tells this woman that you go tell him, tell him his house is going to be cut off and his descendants won't be buried. The vast majority of them will fall and they'll be eaten by dogs and birds. They will not have that burial except for this one child, Ahijah. Um, he tells her, frankly, Ahijah will die when you enter the city. Incidentally, uh, just an anecdote, uh, apropos of nothing, I, I, taught, um, I taught the historical books in Africa 
And after I taught on this section, I asked, were there any questions? And after the class, uh, one of the students, pastor, came up and he said to me, he said, yes, there's one thing I don't understand. And I said, okay, what is it? Uh, and he said that the thing with, with, uh, with Jeroboam and his wife, why did she go back? And I said, come again? What? <laughs> and he said, well, you know, he told her, when you enter the city, the child will die. Don't enter the city. <laughs> I never thought of that. I don't think that's how it works, though. And also, the wife of the king can't say, sorry, hon, I'm not coming back. <laughs> that's a, there, was, there was no way to do that. And he's like, oh, well, you know. <laughs> Seemed like an idea. Um, but that's, that's not the way it works, obviously. It was just interesting that he thought of that. Um, but note this interesting thing about Ahijah. Something good is found in him. Of all the, the descendants of Jeroboam, Jeroboam himself, worthless. A man who was reprobate, who hated the Lord. And yet this child, there's something in him that is good. And what would that be? Well, that can only be faith. This was a child who believed in the Lord God. We need to remember that even in the midst of, of a wicked generation, a wicked city, a wicked nation, there will always be those whom the Lord has appointed who is elected, who is called. He always preserves for himself, no matter where, a remnant. And so we have this young boy, Ahijah, apparently, loved the Lord. And the Lord, as a result, loved him. And so in one sense, and this is something hard to comprehend, something hard sometimes for us to endure, the Lord does a mercy to Ahijah. Or rather, sorry, to Abijah. Ahijah, Abijah. Once you get into 1 Kings, it, you know, the names all sound, anyway, they begin to run together. But he does a great mercy to him. How does he do that? Well, he calls him to himself, doesn't he? He takes this young boy home, and so the, the young man won't have to see all of the wickedness that's going on in that particular city. will no longer have to endure any of those things. And the people of Israel, they see the goodness of the child. Apparently he already had a good reputation and they mourn for him and they bury him. It is a hard thing to lose a loved one, but that loss is tempered when we know that the child or the loved one that we have has gone to be with the Lord. They have lost nothing and gained everything. Although Abijah never became the king of this particular kingdom, he entered into a kingdom that can never be taken away. He gained an inheritance incorruptible that could be stolen by foreign rulers. And so a good thing happened to him. He seemed like the unfortunate one, but he actually was the only one of, and the Lord makes this point, he's actually the only one of your descendants who's going to be blessed. All the rest are going to be cut off. And the Lord tells her, go tell Jeroboam that he is going to raise up a new king over Israel who will cut off his house utterly. Even now, he says, this king exists. Uh, and that is a reference to Baasha, who would eventually assassinate Jeroboam's heir, his other son, Nadab, who becomes king after him. Now, one thing, I don't know if you noticed this, the name that he gave to his son, Nadab, is telling. 
What's the historical provenance of the name Nadab? Well, Aaron had two sons who were going to be high priests after him, Nadab and Abihu. What did they do? They ignored the commandments of the Lord, and they said, we can worship God the way we want. So they offered up to him their, an incense of their own devising at a time of their own devising. They decided we're going to reformat God's worship. So they brought their own strange fire, their own incense before the Lord, and fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. And from that point onwards, Nadab and Abihu became a byword for corruption, for corrupting the worship of God. And the interesting thing is, between the account of the death of Nadab and Abihu in the Torah, all the way through to 1 Kings, we don't find anybody wretched enough to name their child Nadab or Abihu, okay? No Nadabs, you can search. There are no Nadabs up until this point. He calls his son Nadab after this, this young man who offered strange fire. And it's, as I said, very telling about his own heart. So he's told your children will be cut off. And then he's given this even more terrifying prophecy that the people, the people of Israel, because they had joined in the idolatry, the 10 tribes would be uprooted from the promised land. They would be brought beyond the river. That is a warning that the Assyrians will come and they will take them far, far to the north into the lands beyond the Ken of the people of Israel. They will be brought to a foreign place. And that indeed happened. The kingdom of Israel was destroyed and the people were scattered by Assyria. It would take hundreds of years for that prophecy to be fulfilled, but it was. Now, I want to make three applications of this to you. The first is this. We see here a nation that is dying for the lack of knowledge. What do I mean by that? There is truth available. There are prophets who know the truth. There is the word of God to instruct them, to lead them, to show them the way that they should worship. But they want the truth on their terms. Note this. Jeroboam is very interested in finding out what is going to happen to his son. He wants that prophecy. He wants that word of knowledge. But he is not going to embrace the religion of the Lord. He knows his own prophets are utterly worthless, but he will not get rid of them. But when he wants the truth, he goes to the true prophet, the man who is following the word of the Lord, and he asks him. Now, I, I hate to put it this way. This, these are hard applications, I, 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 I will admit. But God's people have a tendency to do that. What do I mean by that? I'll give you an example. There was a family um, that went to a reformed church. The husband had been um, evangelized by a, a Calvinist, a reformed man, in his workplace. Uh, prior to that time, he was uh, very Arminian, very Pentecostal, very, you know, not quite sure about theology and so on. But this, this man had definitely impressed him. He'd given him many resources. And then that man had encouraged him, come to my church. Come and worship with us. And so he brought his family, that man had brought his family to their worship service, but his family hated it. They despised it. The wife indelibly associated actual worship with at least 30 minutes 
of singing and dancing uh, and singing CCM, singing the, the songs that she heard on the radio. She could not stand the fact that there were no women uh, who were leading in worship and who were singing. They didn't have a praise band. There was no children's church for the kids. What do you do with these children? How Children can't sit through a worship service that's not infotainment. You can't do that. We all know that's impossible, right? You kids don't exist, incidentally. Um, so she, she said, I, I, I hate it. I, I'm not, I don't want to go there. We need to stay at, at our church. We need to keep going to our, our megachurch. But the husband, he had been captivated by the truth, and he wanted to keep hearing it. But at the same time, he figured, I can't bring my, parent, my family here. It's not going to work. So he would meet with the pastor. They would go out to lunch, and he would ask him all of his questions about theology. What do you think about this? And he would write down the, the answers, and he knew that this guy was giving them the truth. But at the same time, then this man would speak to the pastor, and he would complain about the awful teaching. He would complain about the terrible sermons. He would complain and complain and complain. He would complain about women leading in worship, the lack of depth and substance. And then he would say stuff like, oh, if only... If only you could bring together the truth that's preached at your church with the entertainment at the church that we go to. And the pastor said to him, he said, I'm, I'm sorry, that's not possible. Don't you understand, brother? The sermons that you're hearing at your church, they fit that service. They fit that worship. I mean, just even in the time, you couldn't walk into that church with a 60-minute service with 30 minutes of, of P&W, the, the, you know, uh, starting things off and ending things, and, and shoehorn a 40-minute reform sermon into the midst of that. And besides, the pastor said, if I were to come and preach at that church, within a month, I would have winnowed them down by about 50%. They would not tolerate that for a moment. They wouldn't change to, from light, airy, topical, in you know, bubbly sermons with, with jokes and videos to 40-minute expositional sermons without videos. It just, you can't bring them together. You can't combine truth and error in the way that you're trying to. It doesn't work. And that's the truth, brothers and sisters. If we ignore the commandments of God when it comes to his worship and we say we want to do this because it works, it'll work for our people, it'll work for our time, it's entertaining and so on, it comes at such a heavy price. What do you inevitably lose in that context? You inevitably lose the truth bit by bit, which is exactly what happened when Jeroboam changed the word of God and his worship. Hosea, a prophet who would come much later, would go to Israel and part of what the Lord would say through Hosea was this. In Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also will reject you from being priest for me because you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forget your children. I have to tell you this. What is going on in Christianity at the moment? The people are being destroyed through a lack of knowledge. There's a lack of teaching. There's a lack of adherence to the word of God. We've imported the culture into the church in the same way Jeroboam imported the culture into the church back then. And it has had terrible effects. I read things posted by Christians on Facebook and I'm like, holy mackerel. This isn't even Nicene Christianity. 
We're, we're, we're completely adrift. What are you hearing? What are you learning? What are you reading? But it's because we wanted something entertaining. We wanted something that appealed to the natural man. We wanted all of these things, and we thought we could have truth and error and combine them together into a hodgepodge, and it does not work. Second application, our culture, just as much as the culture in the time of Jeroboam, is attempting to toss God behind their back. They have said, we've moved on from all of that that old-timey religion stuff. We don't believe that. We reject, we repudiate everything that came before. We have rejected the traditions. We've torn down all of the walls. We have gotten rid of the things that our forefathers did. We, we associate everything in the past with that which is bad and everything that we're doing with that which is good. Now we know that we must not listen to what this word, this Bible that our parents used to read says. Instead, we need to eat bugs. We need to dress as the opposite sex. We need to worship Mother Earth, a.k.a. Gaia. And this will result in blessings. We have received the blessings of... Uh, we've received the blessings of... Um, the uh, blessings of not having enough electricity, uh, not having kids, uh, being lonely, being angry, being depressed all the time. What blessings we have inherited by tossing God behind our back. What foolishness. But you see it happening here. Jeroboam did it. He knew the truth. He knew the truth. And yet he said, no, we will not have any of this. And he was told, you're bringing curses down, not only upon yourself. His wife went back and delivered a message saying, this will be the destruction of the entire nation. And yet he would not turn. He stayed in that way. He would not turn. You abandon the gospel. You abandon hope for the future. I, I don't just mean hope for the future in a this-worldly sense. I mean you abandon hope for eternity. This man had turned them out of the way of faith, turned them out of the way of salvation. They had abandoned the God who had been the source of all of their blessings, who had brought them into the promised land. And now they were, they were pulling down the house upon their own heads. And it would result in nothing good. They had abandoned the way of life and had instead embraced the way of death. Throw away the Bible. Throw away the light that God has given us and your nation will not endure. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I know this is hard. I fear so much for this nation. I weep. Do you ever weep? Do you ever, is your heart ever, I mean, inwardly, I see what we're doing to the children of this nation. How we're, we're not just, I mean, I, I, see, I see videos where they take children to these, I, I can't even describe them in, in any way of propriety. People have naked men dancing. And this is good? How wretched. How wretched is a nation without God? How lonely, how sad. We have nations that now have to appoint ministers of loneliness because we've blown apart the family system that used to provide those links. And one of the things that, that, 
that hurts my heart is when I see older people who are so cut off, so without fellowship. It, it's, but it's all self-inflicted. We've done it to ourselves. And we call evil good. Brothers and sisters, unless there's an awakening, unless our eyes are opened, unless we rediscover the word, the same word that changed my course forever, unless we get that, we have no hope. It doesn't matter how we deal with inflation or the economy or Ukraine or any of those. Those are that small potatoes and has no eternal impact. No eternal impact at all. We need to recover this word. We need to humble ourselves or we are doomed. Do not be deceived, Paul said. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. We keep sowing to the flesh and thinking we're going to get good stuff. But do not despair. Never despair. We can, we can weep. We can, be, we can be devastated. We can be angry. We should be at what's happening. But don't despair because the Lord has promised, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The Lord has said he will always, like Abijah, even in the house of Jeroboam, that's an open demonstration of his grace even in the midst of corruption, I will preserve a remnant. Now, in one sense, I could go on and on and on like that, going after the culture, but that's not actually my calling. It's not my calling to, to, to deal with those who are outside. My calling is to deal with those who are inside, in the covenant community. What is your own attitude towards God? Are you dealing with him openly and honestly? Or do you disguise yourself and think he won't notice? Do you want the gifts and the talents and the things like that that you think you can get for him, but you don't want to part with the world? And so you live that kind of weird life where you're pretending to be one thing when you're really another, dressing up, so to speak. Are you trying to disguise yourself and figuring God won't see you for who you really are? We can fool ourselves. In fact, generally speaking, when we embrace a path of sin, it's usually as a result of self-delusion. And we can fool other people. We can pretend to be who we're not. But there's one person you can't fool, and that is God. He sees you the way you are. Phil Reichen, I'm grateful to uh, him. He pointed out um, uh, a work by Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher. I, I had not uh, actually read this one. I've read other things that Kierkegaard has written, but he wrote a book in 1849 called The Sickness Unto Death. And uh, what it was uh, dealt with was the folly of thinking that we can hide our sin from God and thus avoid his judgment. He compared life to a masquerade ball. And um, you guys have probably seen plays and things like that, that that talk about the masquerade balls that particularly took place in the 17th and 18th and to a certain extent 19th century. Well, at midnight... The custom was, you know, you, you dealt with all the people in the ball and, you know, you could be risque and so on because people didn't know who you are. But at 12 o'clock, everybody was supposed to cast off their masks. And so you would know the person that you'd been dealing with and stuff like that. Everything was revealed and open. But Kierkegaard said, do you know that there comes a midnight hour when everyone has to throw off his mask? 
Do you think you can slip away a little before midnight in order to avoid this? Or are you terrified by it? There's a day coming when you will be revealed. You will be absolutely as naked as Adam and Eve were before God after they sinned. When you stand before him. No more facade, no more covering, no more mask, no more pretending to be somebody you're not. Will you be ready for that day? I hope you will. I want to, one of the most uh, famous interactions with these verses uh, was actually given by Spurgeon in his autobiography. I want to actually read, I'll close with what Spurgeon said. He was preaching on the same verses that I was. I was? <laughs> I think that's right, yeah. Um, and he wrote this. The service at the tabernacle on Lord's Day evening, July 31st, 1864, was a memorable one to Mr. Spurgeon and two of his hearers, and afterwards to many more, when he related a singular circumstance which occurred in connection with this, uh, his sermon that night. A man living in Newington had been converted through the pastor's preaching, and he became a regular worshiper at the tabernacle. His wife, a very staunch member of the Church of England, strongly objected to his going. But he continued to intend, notwithstanding all that she said. One Sabbath night after her husband had gone to the service, her curiosity overcame her prejudice. And she herself determined to go hear Mrs. Spurgeon. Not wishing to be known, she tried to disguise herself by putting on a thick veil and a heavy shawl. And sought still further to avoid observation by ascending to the upper gallery. She was very late in reaching the building. So just as she entered, the preacher was announcing his text. And the first words that sounded in her ears were strikingly appropriate to her case, especially as she declared that Mr. Spurgeon pointed directly at her as he said, Come in, thou wife of Jeroboam. Why feignest thou thyself to be another? This singular coincidence further impressed her when in the course of his sermon, the pastor said, While thus speaking about the occasional hearer, an idea haunts my mind that I have been drawing somebody's portrait. I think there are some here who have had their character and conduct sketched out quite accurately enough for them to know who is meant. Do remember that if the description fits you, it is intended for you. And if you yourself have been described, do not look about among your neighbors and say, I think this refers to somebody else. If it applies to you, Take it home to yourself. And may God impress it upon your conscience so that you cannot get rid of it. If what has been said to you applies to you, don't try to throw it off. I remember one of the greatest changes, I, and I'll leave with this, in my hearing of sermons occurred on a day when suddenly it wasn't, oh, I wish somebody else had heard that, when I realized that what I was hearing was meant for me. I hope you realize that too. Let's go before the Lord. God our Father, Lord, I am weak, but thou art strong. I pray now that you would do that work that you need to and the hearts here and those who are listening online. May you, O oh Lord, be the one who changes them, who causes them to throw off their disguise, to realize that they cannot pretend to be something else before you. I pray that we would realize that we need truth, the whole truth, from you. We need to be able to worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, nothing, nothing else will abide. And we do pray for our nation, Lord. We have cast off the truth. We have thrown it away. We've taken the light and we have, we've trampled it underfoot. But I pray now, Lord, that you would do that work that you have done in the past. You awakened us before. Awaken us again. Awaken us not just as a nation, but as individuals and as families. Help us 